Our guest today is Dr. Ann Chu, the Executive Deputy Director of the Penn Center for Cellular Immunotherapies, as well as a co-founder of Community. She is an inspiration to me as an Asian-American woman and a biotech leader. Yeah, and something I personally really admire about Ann are those qualities of scientific curiosity, entrepreneurial spirit, and humble leadership that I think she embodies and I think really are the core foundations of a great biotech founder. We talked about how her education at Barnard set the tone for her to love science and to break gender barriers, and the arc of her career at Penn, including establishing the foundation of what became the Penn Center for Cellular Immunotherapies, preparing the biologics license application for Kim Raya, and co-founding Community. I hope you enjoy. So we're thrilled to welcome Dr. Ann Chu, Deputy Director of the Penn Center for Cellular Immunotherapies and co-founder of Community at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, thank you, Ann, for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be part of your series. Yeah, so quick background on Ann. Ann Chu um, has a PhD and is the Executive Deputy Director for the University of Pennsylvania, or our Penn Center for Cellular Immunotherapies, and is one of the co-founders of Community. She is responsible for overall strategic and operational leadership of all um, CCI, our Center for Cellular Immunotherapy sponsored research programs and de translational development initiatives in cell and gene therapy. Together with Novartis, Anne played a pivotal role in preparing the Penn CTL-019 submission to the FDA that was granted breakthrough designation and served as co-chair on the Penn Novartis Global Program Team, which was responsible for CTL-019 clinical development. Dr. Chu received her undergraduate degree from Barnard College, Columbia University, and her PhD in genetics from Yale University School of Medicine. So Anne, growing up, were you always interested in science? I think I've always had an affinity towards science since middle school, and I think um, mostly because they were the most interesting classes that I had. Um, I was very fortunate having teachers early on that um, really in in imbued a, a love of science, right? Not just, you know, from a sake of learning standpoint, but looking at it from an application standpoint, um, doing lots of hands-on experiments. I chose biology uh, when I went to Barnard College and there at Barnard, you know, I, I was a Howard Hughes pre-doctoral fellow. Uh, a fellow. Um, I enjoyed doing research, you know, during the summer. And then uh, that led me to pursue doing a PhD uh, rather than an MD. Um, thereafter. That's very cool, Anne. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your decision to go to a women's college uh, at Barnard. And I asked that because I think it's relatively rare to see women uh, scientific co-founders and also just co-founders in general for biotech companies. And I was wondering if that education at Barnard played a role in your enthusiasm to break molds and break barriers. I, I think about the female leaders of the world, and a lot of them also came from all women's colleges. And so just wondering what that curriculum was like for you. I, I think it, you know, really um, made a huge impression on me and, and my thinking. Um, I, I think, you know, Barnett College is actually very unique in that it's a women's college within a large research institute within Columbia University. So you kind of have 
the, the best of both worlds, right? In the sense that I felt I wasn't limited in not being, I was I was at a, li- a small liberal arts college um, and was able to take a lot of uh, different uh, symposiums and, and smaller seminar classes that were really, you know, the emphasis on the, the woman as a protagonist, right? Or, or I think even having these women-only seminars um, and feeling as if, you know, there were no other men in the room that were interrupting or allowing you to be able to uh, state your your thinking and having um, the ability to have a lot more opportunities open to you from a research standpoint. Like I was doing undergraduate research at Barnard and uh, the majority of the professors um, had hired, you know, TAs that were women. And uh, so I, I think that that was it really made an impression to be able to speak up and um, uh, to see strong women um, mentors and, and professors. That's awesome. It's, so it sounds like from a young age, you were able to see good examples of women in leadership roles. Are you involved in the women in biotech community now? I think a lot of the initiatives that I do are really within the Penn community. Um, there's a lot within our, our center of cellular immunotherapies. There are a lot of you know middle level directors who are all female. Um, I think uh, being a supportive mentor tour, you know for all of them and helping them to develop their careers um, or helping them to identify new opportunities to um, you know further develop their careers and just showing them like firsthand how to lead, right? Um, and giving them a voice and, and, and making sure they get the credit that they deserve in, in terms of leading their initiatives and things like that. So I, I do a lot of that within you know, our center because of where I sit um, as um, you know, deputy director of the center. Um, so being able to drive uh, their initiatives and their growth. Got it. Can you, speaking on the subject of your current role at Penn now, can you tell us a little bit more about what it means to be the deputy director? Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm I'm basically the deputy director for Carl June's program at UPenn. So I joined um, uh, this group uh, in 2006. And at that time, I think we were probably a group of four people doing translational research. um, so how did you join? How did you join? Because that was before anyone really got on the bandwagon for CAR T. Prior to um, it being the CAR T group, like Carl um, was director of the translational research program at the Abramson Center, Abramson Cancer Center. And at that point in 2006, Penn was one of the 12 academic centers that had uh, received a clinical and translational science award uh, through the NIH. And this federal program was to bring awareness of clinical and translational science as a discipline uh, to advance like basic lab research, you know, into clinical testing. Because, you know, prior to this, there it was, it was really, you know, more black and white in the sense that you have a group of, you know, researchers doing basic work, and then you have clinicians. And there really wasn't a bridge between the two, right? To um, so, how do you think about facility? Um, we, we we hear this, you know, term used a bench to bedside, right? So, how do we really make that happen? Like, how do we speed the translation in in the program? But really trying to. Uh, bring in like kind of multi-directional, multidisciplinary integration of all of that uh, basic research, patient research, uh, with the long-term aim of trying to um, you know improve um, you know patient care. 
Um, so we joined at that time and we were looking at um, how do we dissect out um, looking at the framework of the FDA guidances that were out there at that time, right, around cell and gene therapy um, to develop scale-up processes and validations, um, developing products that would meet FDA uh, approval for investigation new drug therapies, uh, looking at um, uh, you know, qualifications of critical reagents such as the lentiviral vectors used for car tra- transduction, looking at different methods of expansion uh, with the bees as well as cell-based artificial antigen-presenting cells, looking at RNAs for transient tra- transduction of cars. There's a lot of different parts when you're doing, you know, translational work. So how do you even look at... Uh, how do you apply the preclinical uh, development that you're doing into like the mouse studies that will inform, you know, potentially uh, the feasibility and safety of these investiga- investigational products um, that would meet the, the, the um, guidelines of the FDA. So this was 2006, where you mentioned, were the effects of Jesse Gelsinger's death still felt at that time. And what did that mean for, in terms of how Penn was thinking about translational research? It was definitely felt within our group because my my first office actually was in, um, in we were actually in the lab that was vacated by um, Jim Wilson. So um, we were all aware and I think hence the reason why that first, you know, IND for even, you know, CART-19, which ultimately became Kim Raya, took us about like three to four years to um, get that, you know, submitted to the FDA because we wanted to make sure we were orchestrating safely, right? Because what we're doing is risky science as well, too. And, and it was very exploratory science and it was the, the first time we were foraying back into cell and gene therapies after Jesse Gilsinger. So um, it's definitely, it was um, in our minds. The question that I had in my mind, and thank you for sharing that, is uh, what it means to operate at that intersection of basic research and clinical translation and how you end up guiding basic research towards eventual clinical translation? Is it more looking on the regulatory side? Is it more looking at what's needed in clinics? Or is it really taking a really close look at the basic research? I think it's all of the above. I think, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky in the sense that I work with amazing scientists, but um, I think there's there is a reason why when you when you look at amazing science and what actually gets to go into the clinic and then ultimately even further than that like what gets commercialized like it's really a funnel right because there, there's no lack of you know great ideas but really I, I think you know the integration of, um, of the of the operational pieces right in the logistics and managing you know all of that is is key here because I, I think what we're seeing here is with science it's not just research anymore, right? Particularly seeing how cell and gene therapies as a field has exploded. Um, So I think now when we're even embarking on um, um, new research projects, it's not just, is the science good, right? Is this something worth um, developing? But okay, how clean is the IP, you know, for instance, right? Um, 
you know, what is the timing of some of the critical reagents, right? Um, what phase of, you know, GMP are we allowed to, um, you know, work within the confines, right? Particularly as we're establishing different types of tools and different platforms and things like that. So it, it's really a concerted effort of science and regulatory and then, you know, and even business resourcing, right? When you have competing priorities and, do you have the appropriate people to conduct the trials, right? How much you know, monitoring of, of the trial do you need to do? And then looking at, um, um, depending on the first couple of patients that are treated, like what does the response look like? What's the safety profile? Like what's the post-administration uh, management of, of these patients? Like, do we have the release assays? Do we have the correlative assays ready to look at the endpoints? Right? So there's a lot of coordination of functional teams. And, and that's kind of what we've built um, at the CCI over the past, like, you know, 15 years or so, having a, an entire translational engine to be able to do all of this from manufacturing the T-cells to um, doing uh, protocol development, IND submission and monitoring and correlative sciences. So we've really kind of built, I, I, I joke, but it's really true. Like even though we're academia, we're kind of like a mini biotech um, doing all of this work. Especially for cellular therapies where like the process is really the product. Mm -hmm. It's just remarkable to me that the CCI was able to pull off the first IND submission and then subsequently the first approval for Kim Ryan. It, It really is quite remarkable to me because you guys have tread new waters in so many different parameters, not only I think operational, but also regulatory and scientific as well, and also business too. And so I was wondering if you could talk more about the role that you played, I think, in, in submitting the first BLA application uh, for what became Kimraya and in how you were able to consider all those new unmarked territories that um, you had to learn about in order to make a case to the FDA? So obviously, selecting Novartis as a strategic um, a collaborator was very key to all of that because they were the ones who had the leadership in on- oncology um, and knowing where their strengths were and our strengths were, were um, it made for a, a very successful um, a team effort. Uh, obviously, we're, we're very good, very well-versed in the phase one uh, kind of domain, right? And, and looking at the first in human um, testing of these and having real-time analysis of, of these patients. Um, but then working with um, a pharmaceutical company who had the resourcing and had all the expertise to really go global and, and do multi-site trials. I think that w- was the key uh, for being successful. Some of the things that uh, we needed to work you know, closely with the FDA is having them demonstrating to them first and foremost that this wasn't a one-site phenomenon, right? Are we seeing these complete responses um, only at Penn because we're a very well-experienced um, 
um, institution with physicians and scientists who have been studying T cell, you know, immunotherapies for for like a for a decade. Can this be extended out to you know different multi-site trials? And what is the ease of being able to administer? Um, and kind of follow these patients. We also obviously needed to show the FDA that um, we could treat more than, you know, our three patients at the time, right? So, you know, at the point that when we embarked on this relationship with Novartis, we had only treated uh, three CLL patients. You know, how do you expand out to different patient populations and, and, and different cohorts? How do you also think about converting, scaling up a academic process, right? That was... Um, not full GMP and and might not you know meet the muster from an agency um, uh, FDA looking at a, a therapy that was going to be you know commercialized right how do we demonstrate that the merit manufacturing um, um, that we were doing and then tech transfer to Novartis, like how was there a product comparability around that, right? How do you bridge between products that were made at Penn and were initially, you know, being manufactured here and treating the early cohorts of patients? And now you're transitioning to Novartis manufacturing. If there was a difference in, in response, could that be because to your point, the process is the product, right? The process is different. And if you're uh, making different changes in the process, like does that impact um, the product and does it impact the response? Um, even looking at post-administration, right? How do you manage these severe AEs that we saw, like CRS? Like how do you grade them? How do you demonstrate to the FDA that you're providing, you know, kind of careful training of the investigators and in ICUs at other sites? Um, and then even there are a lot of conversations around how do you even define the dose of, you know, Camraya because it's a living drug essentially, right? That continues to expand, you know, in the patient because the patient's the bioreactor. So how, and, and then given how heterogeneous, like the incoming cells are from the patients, right? And the differences in how they expand, what is the exact dose that you're giving, right? So there's a lot of conversations around, do you dose around total cells or do you dose around um, percent transduced cells and, and things like that? So a lot of different, you know, conversations um, and, and things to work out. Thank you, Anne. And uh, something that I've been thinking about a lot recently in regards to um, product discovery or therapeutic discovery in biotech is the balance between um, scientific thinking and scientific discovery, which is this process of meandering and exploring in a space that you don't quite understand, but you know that there's just something you're interested in learning more about. It's really curiosity driven. And the more business focused mindset of um, you know, product discovery, really thinking about exactly what needs in the market need to be filled and working backwards from there on how to best address those needs. How do you balance that working at an academic center that's focused on clinical translation? So I think from an academic center standpoint, um, the business side of things are, are really, you know, not as, as critical or as important, right? Because, you know, the, the role of an academic center isn't really to um, 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 spawn tons and tons of companies, right? Which, although we're, we're doing some of that, just because there's just, you know, so much 
um, money coming now to help um, develop some of these therapies because they're very, very, very expensive. And at an academic level, like you're not able to ever to advance a therapy far enough beyond a couple of patients. Um, so when we're looking at projects, like our first level of, you know, kind of thinking isn't around, is this a business or not, right? It, it's really how compelling the science and is this something that we really want to be able to advance because we see that it will um, fill a niche in patient care. But to your point right now, um, there's a lot of licensing that's happening, like a lot of NUCOs and and, um, investors coming to Penn and saying, okay, are there cars that we can license out and develop and and things like that? And then... um, a lot of and a lot of um, those investors or, or, or companies are interested in working with CCI, right? To at least get the first foray into um, first in human trials, helping us giving the experience that we have with the first IND. So it really is more of a focus on the core tenets of academic research, which is focusing first on curiosity and discovery. And then when it happens to be that you have a discovery that can make it to the clinic, that's when you begin the discussions of how to go through that clinical translation process. Yeah, correct. Gotcha. Oh, I'd love to talk more about, um, most recently you've co-founded Community, which is a next generation CAR-T company. Um, can you tell us about what the next generation of CAR-T looks like? Yes, just a little bit background on kind of the founding of Community. Because Penn had entered into this exclusive global research and licensing agreement to like study and commercialize cell therapies using um, CAR technologies, it was important that when we founded Community that we founded, we legally carved out what Community had like freedom to operate to develop particularly since like three of the founders, myself, Carl June and Bruce Levine were so heavily involved in the Novartis Alliance. Um, so to me, it was initially founded to use CAR T cell therapies to tackle like HIV infectious diseases and also all the immune diseases because um, you know, we were still negotiating return of certain CAR assets for the oncology space. Um, since, you know, to me, it was co-founded in two, late 2015 when we were still in this alliance with Novartis, we didn't want to focus on hematologic malignancies, but really develop cars against um, tumor, uh, solid tumors, right? Because first, I think we wanted to understand how broadly, you know, CAR T-cell therapies can be applied or can be extended to a new paradigm of cancer treatment, or was success really going to be restricted to uh, leukemia and lymphomas, right? For for using um, Kimrai as an example. So, uh, to me, it was founded with the goal of trying to tackle solid tumors. So it seems like after the early success of Kimraya, curing liquid tumors, you had the thought of, can we take this uh, baseline platform technology to the next level by targeting solid tumors and a number of other cell-based diseases? And that was really the, the conception of, of, um, of community. Yeah, and knowing that it was going to be actually a more difficult task, right? Because the patterns of antigen expression on solid tumors are much more heterogeneous, and like there and the immunosuppressive scaffold or within solid tumors, like i.e. the microenvironment, right, further complicates the issues. So looking at different novel CAR T cell designs that may need to incorporate additional stimulatory immunostimulatory features or molecular switches and, and things like that was something that we set out to do. 
It's interesting to me that uh, I just learned that Timunity was founded in 2015. So it, it sounds like the founding of Timunity was in parallel with the, the development of Kamrai. I would have thought that it was sequential just because like, it would have been easier, at least from my perspective, to take the learnings from Kamraya and then apply that to solid tumors and then out upon uh, unique features that you had already talked about in, uh, in terms of the challenges of developing CAR T and solid tumors. But can you talk about that parallel development process was like and how you transferred some of the knowledge that was mm-hmm. acquired during the development of Kimraya to what you're doing now at Teamunity? I think after a couple of years, we realized that it was such heavy lifting to even um, commercialize one one product, right? And and that was the goal of of um, community working in parallel to uh, create you know a company that could continue what we started, right? With with different um, you know car assets. So even though we were founded late, you know, 2015, we were kind of stealth mode for a little bit and um, had only raised about like. Uh, five million dollar in seed financing uh, initially from Penn, which was kind of exciting at the time because it represented the first time Penn Medicine had actually invested in the company, and since then, you know, they've invested in others. But we were like the actually the first company that. Um, um, you know, had received funding from Penn Medicine, but it wasn't until we recruited. Um, the CEO in 2016, and then we did a huge Series A funding um, in 2018, 2019. So that was at the tail end of um, our um, our alliance. So even though we were founding it early, we really didn't get you know off the ground with sufficient financing uh, until later on, uh, a couple of years later. Um, but. I think what we learned a lot uh, from the Navarre's relationship was that it's different from a kind of a licensing activity where you're like, okay, someone comes in, licenses the technologies, and you're like, okay, bye, you know, go off and be successful as a company. Um, you really need it. Um, a lot of you know continual you know interaction um, between the co-founders as well as the management of of um, uh, the NUCO because there there's really no there's so much um, know-how within the founders at Penn there was wasn't a need to really reinvent um, a lot of things um, so I, I think it it would have been difficult to. Um, start community had we not gone through the experience of the Navarrish relationship. And I think, Eric, going back to your question, we didn't realize how little we knew about like, the business aspects right, of cell and gene therapy um, before that, right? Because we were so just kind of rooted within the academic sphere. So seeing like how important actually having um, IP positions around things or um, you know, a IP portfolio around things and making sure that, you know, there was enough funding to you know, get to the end goal, right? Because previously we're like, oh yes, we have enough money to make the vector. Okay, we'll figure out after we make the vector what the next step was. It wasn't as kind of timeline, you know, driven. Um, so I think we saw a lot more of that and, and, and just looking at how efficient, you know, a pharmaceutical company can be when they're developing registration trials and looking at um, uh, not just U.S. submissions, but international submissions and 
Um, how do you think long term being involved in discussions around like reimbursement and um, and things like that? So I, I think it, it was very useful um, for us co-founders to be a part of that before launching, you know, community. It sounds like the CCI has a system now for translating technology, spitting out these companies and working with biotech as well as pharma. And it seems to me like the world's eyes are now on what's happening at Penn and specifically at the CCI. My first question is, how do you deal with that pressure? How do you and some of the others who are intimately involved in the leadership at CCI deal with that pressure? Because I can easily imagine that if the phase one for Kim Raya had not gone well, that would have been the death of the cell therapy field as we know it today. Uh, but maybe it wouldn't have been a big splash back then if people weren't really paying attention, but now people are paying attention. And so how do you deal with that pressure of the world watching you? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to doing good science, but also safely treating the patients. Um, because I just think back, like even with treating our first pediatric, you know, patient, like had um, Carl and and um, Steve Grupp not decided to use like tocilizumab, for instance, right? And had we had a fatal AE, like that would have been the end of it. Um, so and really, this was Emily Whitehead. Is that yes, exactly. So really, having the mindset of um, making sure that. We're, we're minimizing kind of risk to patients. Um, this often comes with starting with low doses and we have very adaptive uh, approaches to our study design and, and things like that. And um, so I, I think that's key. Um, and then really just having the best team around working with the clinicians. Uh, we have great, such qualified clinicians here um, who like have obviously the you know, patient's best interest um, and will do uh, whatever they can to, to treat the patients. Other types of pressures are around um, the fact that we can't really translate every project that's put in front of us. So how do we think about prioritization of things too, right? So I, I think that's another um, kind of pressure point. So um, going back a little bit, Anne, you know, you're the deputy director of, of CCI here at Penn. And what do you think is the role of a leader in an institution? I think the role of a leader is to um, get the best out of their team, right? Because in order to scale, you can't do everything yourself. Um, so um, giving your, you know, those around you the ability to be able to make their own decisions, make their own mistakes, but then um, support and, and help them resolve issues as necessary. But the better trained and the more you can delegate, I feel that's, you know, the role of a, of a leader um, isn't to micromanage because if you're going to micromanage everything, you might as well be doing it yourself. Um, so I think the freedom to, um, to drive, um, but giving them the freedom, but then also defining for them the guidelines and making sure that everyone understands what the overall mission is. Because if you don't have a clear mission statement and you don't have a clear goal uh, or understanding what the deliverables will be, like it's very difficult to navigate. You need to know what, you know, what you're all working towards. Do you have a moonshot goal for your career or something that you would like to see happen? 
uh, the span of your career? I would like to um, very much like the community's mission. Like I would love to see some inroads in um, solid tumors. I'm interested in, in seeing the promise of CRISPR editing. I think we're at, you know, just the beginning of that. Um, but it'll be interesting to see like in you know, a kind of incorporation of that type of technology, um, you know, into immunotherapies. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you enjoyed our conversation today as much as we did. For an episode recap, updates on more episodes and our writings, you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and our website at behindbiotech.com. Thank you.